0: Please join me in prayer. Lord, it is true that we need you every hour. There is no hour of the day where we can get along without you. There is no hour of the day where we can do fine on our own, but Lord, we need you every hour. And we thank you for the grace that you have given us, that you give us grace each hour of every day. And Lord, we thank you that in this hour we can come to your word. Lord, what a blessing your word is, for through it you speak to your people. You have done so in the past and you continue to speak to us even this evening. And so we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds that we might hear what you have set before us. Let the cares and concerns of this world fade away and may the spirit direct us more and more To Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Congregation, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5. This can be found on page 1424 in your Pew Bibles. We'll be reading the first 17 verses of Amos. Chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness, and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn, and darkens day into night who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses, and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate the evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore this is what the Lord Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst says the lord this is the word of our god thanks be to god congregation we all like to be comfortable don't we i mean who doesn't want that you get home from work at the end of a long day what do you do You, you change out of your clothes you you settle down into your favorite chair you get comfortable but then imagine one day as you're comfortably lay- sitting there in your chair, you hear the TV start screaming out a warning that, that there's a tornado coming. Right? There's tornado warnings all around. A funnel cloud has been spotted and it's heading in your direction. You hear the sirens going in the distance. You hear the wind slapping branches up against your windows. Boy, this is, this is for real. And in that moment, what do you do? What do you do in that moment? You're no longer comfortable, are you? No, you, you are up out of that chair. You are running for a storm shelter. Right? You leave the cushy comfort of that chair behind and you find comfort in the four strong cement walls of your basement. You see, we all like to be comfortable, but it's important to take comfort in the right things. And in our text this evening, we we find a people who have taken comfort in the wrong things. We find a people who have grown comfortable in their sin, who have settled down into a cushy chair with armrests of idolatry and injustice. They're comfortable in their sin, and, and God has been pointing out their sin. And he has been promising judgment for the last three chapters in Amos 2, in Amos 3, and in Amos 4, but these people have not paid attention. They've remained content in what they're doing. They're comfortable. And so in our passage, when we get to our passage, Amos gives these people the warning that they need. He proclaims a very serious and simple message. That God calls the comfortable to repent. This is the theme of Amos 5, 1-17, through 17, and it's what we'll be focusing on this evening. God calls the comfortable to repent. And this repentance really requires three things, which will be our three points this evening. First, repentance requires acknowledging the coming judgment. Second, repentance requires turning from sin. And third, repentance requires turning to the Lord. So acknowledging the coming judgment, turning from sin, and turning to the Lord. So first, acknowledging the coming judgment because if you're going to get out of the way of a tornado, you first of all need to acknowledge that it's coming. Right? And likewise, if Israel was going to be saved from God's coming wrath, they had to acknowledge that it was coming. But until Amos' warning, they were blind to it. Their, their blinders were up, and they were, so, they were blind to it because they were so comfortable. This was difficult. For Amos's audience to believe, because when they looked around at how things were going in their lives, everything looked great. Amos, the prophet, he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. And during the reign of this king, life in Israel was flourishing. Under him, the, the nation expanded its boundaries to their greatest extent since the time of Solomon. And this expansion, this, this greater territory led to more control over the various trade routes that went through their country. And so they had a lot of wealth coming in and out of their country. There was a lot of wealth flowing in. And when a nation has an abundance of wealth, when they don't need to scrounge around for their meals, when they don't need to fight each other over scraps, then life is good, at least from a material standpoint. And when life is good, when life is comfortable, then the temptation arises to only look at life from a material standpoint, right? The the physical world becomes the only care and concern. And this was the case with Israel. They were blinded to their true condition. They were lulled into complacency by their satiated state. It's like on Thanksgiving, when you eat that delicious feast set before you. you. You have all of this food, and all of your physical needs are met. And then what do you do? You just sink back into the couch because... You're good. Life is good. You're satisfied. You're satiated. That's what Israel was like. They were like they were in that Thanksgiving coma. They they had all of their needs met. And if Israel had all of their needs met, how much more do we? I mean, if, if Israel, this ancient agrarian society, if they were comfortable in what they had, how much more are we? I mean, we live in a time where things are going extremely well for us when we have such comfortable lives, don't we? We have grocery stores filled with all kinds of food. We have transportation that can take us anywhere in the world that we want to be. We, have, we can have anything basically we want delivered to our homes within two days. We have machines that wash our dishes, wash our clothes for us. We have these phones in our pockets that give us all kinds of information and entertainment Communication. We live extremely comfortable lives. And that makes it easy to forget that judgment is coming. Just like Israel, we can be so caught up in the here and now that, that we can be blind to that fact. That we lose sight of the fact that judgment is coming. Maybe to our nation collectively, maybe not. But certainly to each and every individual. So we need to be woken up. We, we need to acknowledge the coming Judgment, And that's exactly what Amos does. With a jolt of electricity, he shocks Israel awake. He he makes them see their true situation by opening their eyes to this truth they had been ignoring. And he does this by means of a lament. In verses 1 and 2, he calls his audience to hear this lament. He says, hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Forsaken on her land, with none to lift her up. Wait, what? Israel is fallen? That's not what we said the situation was, right? The situation of Israel was great. Things were going very well for them, and yet here Amos says that they're fallen, they're, they're destroyed. It's like if you're sitting there in your chair with the sirens blowing and the wind howling outside and on the TV you hear a breaking news bulletin and they say, we regret to inform you that this tornado has already claimed one victim. And then you hear your name. That'd be pretty shocking, wouldn't it? It'd be quite a wake-up call. And it's meant to be like that. Because while everything looks great on the outside, Israel's actual condition is one of hopelessness. They're on death row, as it were. They are a dead nation walking. In verse 2, of this proclamation is in the present tense. Right, Fallen is virgin Israel, implying that there is no doubt. It's absolutely certain that Israel will fall, never to rise again. And at the end of our passage, verses 16 and 17, there's a future aspect. There, there will be wailing in the streets and in the vineyards. It's, it's future, acknowledging that these events are prophecy, that they are yet to come. They haven't happened yet, they, they are in the future, but these horrific events are sure to happen. And indeed, these events, they are horrific. Right? There will be military defeat, as we see described in uh, verses, sorry, I lost my uh, part. Uh, verse 3, that's where the military defeat is described. This is what the sovereign Lord says The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. What we see in these verses is that the nation is going to go out to war and they are going to lose. They're going to get defeated. There is a remnant left, but this isn't meant to be a hopeful remnant. No, the nation's military is going to suffer catastrophic loss, 90% casualties. There's really not much hope for a nation that loses 90% of its fighting force, is there? Have you ever tried to play chess with just your king and a pawn? That's not going to turn out very well, is it? Right? You, You... Don't stand much of a chance if you're depleted that much. And that's not going to work very well for Israel either. They are going to get destroyed. And this destruction is going to result in intense mourning by the people. As we see in verses 16 and 17. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards. The good times that Israel is enjoying right now, they're going to be turned to bad times. And this nation is going to be weeping everywhere. In the streets, in the the squares, even in the vineyards. Those places symbolic of much joy. Instead, the joy is going to be removed from this people. It's going to be replaced by grief and distress and anguish. But what's going to cause this drastic transformation? Why will Israel be filled with mourning instead of their present comfortable contentment? What's going to happen? Well, the last half of verse 17 cues us in. It says this For I will pass through you, says the Lord. This mourning is going to come, this weeping is going to come because of the judgment brought by the presence of the Lord. In previous times in redemptive history, God's favor was on his people. When that was the case, what did he do? He passed over them, right? We remember Passover. God passed over the houses of his people. That's what happened in Exodus. At the Passover, God's judgment passed his people over. But now God's judgment is going to pass through his people. The defeat, the wailing, it's all a horrific picture of the reality of the wrath of God against the sin of the comfortable. But to see a clearer picture of this wrath of God poured out against sin, we we need to look to the New Testament, don't we? For there we see Jesus Christ on the cross. He endured the wrath of God for the sin of man. He took our sin upon himself, and God poured out on his Son his wrath, his, his judgment against sin. And the good news of the gospel is that if we put our faith in Christ, he has taken that judgment for us. So if that's the case, you don't need to face it anymore. It has been dealt with. Your eternal salvation is not in doubt. But that doesn't remove the fact that we still need to please the Lord with our lives. For as 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or good. Or evil. That's the case if we are in Christ. Our, we don't need to face this wrath, but we will still face judgment for what we've done. Christ has taken care of that. But if you aren't in Christ, if you are not a follower of Jesus, then friend, this picture of God's wrath, the destruction, the weeping, all this terribleness that was promised to Israel, then it's promised to you as well. Are we awake yet? Judgment is coming, and we need to acknowledge that fact. But repentance isn't, isn't simply characterized by acknowledging something, by, by knowing something. The comfortable are not called to simply know the, the coming judgment and leave it at that. No, and you can't just see that tornado coming and stay in that comfy chair, can you? No, repentance, it involves action. And that's our second point this evening. Repentance requires turning from sin. Israel in this passage, they were called specifically to turn from two sins. First sin in relation to God, second in relation to man. The first sin is idolatry, second sin is injustice. Let's look at that first sin first. We see the call to repent of idolatry in verses 4 and 5. It says, this is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. What do these three places mean? Beersheba and Gilgal and Bethel. What is Amos talking about here? Well, these three places each had shrines that Israel had been visiting to aid their worship of God. Israel was going to these three places to worship instead of to the Jerusalem temple. And they were doing that because each of these three places had roots in the history of Israel. We can see that on the pages of Scripture. First, Beersheba was visited by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, each one of them. And while they were there at Beersheba, each one was assured of God's presence. When he's there, Abraham is told by Abimelech, God will be with you. And then later on, God himself tells Isaac and Jacob, I will be with you. Again and again, Beersheba is the place in Scripture where God promises his presence to his people. I will be with you. I will be with you. So that's Beersheba. Next, Gilgal. Gilgal reminds them of God's provision. At the beginning of Joshua, you remember the people of uh, Israel crossed the Jordan River to begin the conquest of Canaan. And what did they do? They took stones from the river and they piled them up there at, the, at that place. They built a monument and that place was Gilgal. They built that monument there to remind them of God's provision. And finally Bethel was that place that reminded them of God's presence. You remember Jacob's dream in Genesis 28 with that ladder going up to heaven and God promising many blessings blessings to Jacob there? It was at Bethel that God's presence was with Jacob, and that's why he named it that. Bethel in the Hebrew literally means house of God. Beth, house, El, God. Bethel, house of God. When an Israelite thought of Bethel, they thought of God. However, later on in Israel's history, this location is also associated with that great sin of Israel, Jeroboam's golden calves. Where did he put them? He put them at Dan and Bethel. And so the nation of Israel, they were, they were seeking God's presence there instead of at the temple in Jerusalem. It was, it was a way to hold on to their heritage without falling back under Judah's reign so with these historical ties that we see with these three cities, it, it helps us see why these places were so attractive to the people of Israel. Right? They were seeking God at these sites which had been so significant in their past. However, in their worship, they were really just seeking the sites themselves. They weren't seeking the God whose presence was promised there, whose provision was remembered there. No, they were engaging in idolatry. Because they had forgotten that worship was to be about God. They lost sight of the object of their worship of their worship, while they worshiped in a way that was comfortable to them. But we know better, don't we? I mean, we, we see these Israelites and we know better. We, we come to Jesus Christ in our, for our salvation. We trust in him. We know that he is the way, the truth, and the life that no one can come to the Father except through him. We might think that we know better, but we're, really we're tempted to do the same thing. We can get so caught up in other things, so focused on making worship comfortable for ourselves that we can forget the one whom we're worshiping. We, can, we too can get so caught up in our history, in our history as Reformed Christians, going back to Luther and Calvin and Heidelberg and Dort. We can get so caught up in that history that we lose sight of the Lord. And we can get so caught up in our history as members of First CRC, going back family generations, that we lose sight of the Lord. We can get distracted by our history. We can also get distracted by the place that we worship. We've got a beautiful church building here. It's gorgeous. But if that detracts from our worship, and if our history detracts from our worship, if we lose sight of the Lord, then we're really engaging in idolatry as well. And so, if we place these things above the Lord, if we do this, we, we need to turn from that sin. Just as Israel was called to turn from their idolatry. But idolatry wasn't the only sin that was, Israel was committing. They, they were not only sinning vertically, right, in their relationship with God, they were also sinning horizontally. They were sinning against the people around them. Israel was, their sin particularly, was injustice. And we see this in verses 7, in verse 7, as well as verses 10 through 13. And these verses display Israel's sin, particularly in relation to the poor among them. In this prosperous time, remember, things are going great in this time. At, the, at that time, Israel was making themselves comfortable. They were building up their own wealth and security, but they were doing so at the expense of the poor, instead of caring for the poor like they were supposed to do. Because Israel is a nation, they were commanded by God to care for the poor. At the very formation of the nation, God gave Israel laws by which they were to live as the covenant people and, and repeated throughout these laws, all over the place, was a theme of concern for the poor. Just one example, Exodus 23, verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit." Note the concern there of God, both for justice and for the poor. These these concerns of God, they were supposed to concern his people too. Yet here in Amos 5, we see that Israel has forgotten these commands of the Lord. They've instead sought material gain by taking advantage of the poor. Verse 11, we, we see that exploitation. Verse 11 says, you trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. We see that exploitation. The poor is made to pay taxes to the rich at harvest time, financing the lavish lifestyles of the rich while the poor just get lower and lower and lower. Because of this sin of injustice, we see again a call to judgment in verse 11. The rich are told that they're not going to dwell in the houses that they've built, and they're not going to drink from the vineyards Vineyards that they've planted. This phrase might sound familiar because it's a haunting reminder of when Israel themselves went into this land. In Deuteronomy six eleven, Moses tells the people that in bringing them into the promised land, God was going to give them houses that they didn't build. God was going to give them vineyards that they didn't plant. The people of Canaan they were removed from the land because of their sin, and now generations later, we see Israel very much in danger of being removed in the same way because of this sin of injustice. Now, it's important to note that Israel didn't only practice injustice, they also despised justice itself. Verse 7 shows this attitude. It says, You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. They don't value justice. They don't value righteousness. What do they do? They, They throw it on the ground. They want nothing to do with it. They don't value it at all. This characteristic is described further in verse 10, which reads, You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. They hate the one who reproves in court. They they despise the one who tells the truth. They, They prefer lies over truth if it helps them out. They they despise justice. That's what their heart was showing. They despise it. Verse 12 goes on to say that they afflicted the righteous. They, They took bribes and they denied justice to the needy. These people of Israel, they were so focused on their own comfort that they didn't give two hoots for the poor people around them. They didn't care about anyone else. In both their motives and their deeds, Israel was a people characterized by injustice. So I think it's important for us to ask, what do we see when we stand before the mirror? Right? We know what we're supposed to see. Right? We, we were created in the image of a God who is just. And so we were created to seek justice. We were meant to care for each other. And you can still see this desire for justice in our world today with, with such a concern for social justice, even among people who know nothing about the Bible. We all have a desire for justice. It's built into us. And yet because of the fall, that desire is often twisted and perverted. Just like Israel, we can be so focused on justice for ourselves that we forget about justice for our neighbor. We can be more focused on making our own lives comfortable than on treating our neighbors fairly. But as Christians, is, is that how we're supposed to be? As followers of Jesus, are we supposed to be more concerned with our own comfort or with the needs of those around us? We know the Sunday school answer. Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, it shows that concern that we're supposed to have for our neighbor. But we should ask ourselves, what does this justice for our neighbor actually look like in real life? Well, this means getting out of the comfort of our own lives. It means getting involved with other people taking the time out of our schedule to help those who are needy. It means checking in with the elderly widow next door or the single mother at work to see if we can help them. It means giving generously to charities that are concerned with the welfare of the poor. It means giving generously to the benevolence fund of this church. It means getting out of our comfort zone. We can't ignore the co-worker who abuses the time clock. We, we can't ignore the landlord down the street who charges exorbitant prices to those who can least afford it. We can't ignore the downtrodden and the oppressed in our land just because they run in different circles than we do or speak a different language language than we do or look a little differently than we do. We can't cover our eyes and plug our ears when we hear about the horrible treatment of the unborn or of the immigrant or of anyone else. We can't afford to be comfortable and complacent. Instead, we need to take our cue from Jesus himself who left the comfort of heaven and who entered into our situation, who lived among us, caring for us, dying for us. He cared about us that much. And we're to do likewise. Just as God has loved us, so too are we to love those around us. God's people are called to care for their neighbor, to love justice and to despise injustice. This is how we are called to live. And this is how Israel was called to live, and they were failing. And because of that, Amos urged comfortable Israel to repent, to get up out of that comfy chair of idolatry and injustice, to turn from their sin. And he urged them to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. And this is our third point this evening. Repentance requires turning to the Lord. The comfortable are not called to get up out of that chair and blindly go this way and that, willy-nilly, no, with no idea where to go. No, their repentance has an end goal in sight, and it is the Lord. And therefore, this prophecy, it doesn't simply recite Israel's sins, piling up their guilt without any hope. Rather, we see the imperative seek three times in verses 4, 6, and 14. The first two tell Israel to seek the Lord. And the third one tells Israel to seek good. And these are really logically connected, aren't they? Because when sinners repent from idolatry and injustice, they're, they're turning their focus away from themselves and their own comfort to both God and neighbor. Repentance requires a complete transformation, and this only occurs when the Lord is sought. And who is the Lord? Verses 8 and 9, the very center of our text, they give us a description of who the Lord is. He who made the Pleiades in Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. Here in these verses, the Lord is described as both creator and judge. He is the one to be sought. He is the one Israel is to go towards, not the security that they thought that they they were finding in their empty religion at Gilgal and Bethel and Beersheba. And as they do that, as they seek the Lord, it's also going to result in seeking the good. That's why in verse 14, Israel is commanded to seek good and not evil. And in verse 15, to hate evil and love good. Because if they are desiring to seek God, then they are also going to seek what he desires. They will seek justice. They will seek righteousness. They will seek to end the oppression of the poor and to end the injustice that had been proliferating in their society. And if they seek the Lord, and if they seek the good, then they may live. That hope is what is attached to these three imperatives. You can see it in verse 4. Seek me and live. And in verse 6, seek the Lord and live. And in verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may what? That you may live. Life in the Lord is that hope that is held out to the people of Israel. Life in the Lord. They won't have the false presence of of God that they sought at those three places nor will they have the wrathful presence of a god that is warned about throughout this entire passage rather they will have the merciful presence of a loving god to whom they have returned that's the hope that's held out but we know how their story turned out don't we right we know that this comfortable kingdom of israel they did not repent they did not acknowledge the coming judgment until it was too late They didn't turn from the sin that entangled them. And they didn't turn to the Lord, nor did they do what he commanded. No, they stayed in that comfy chair of their sin while that tornado of God's wrath obliterated them. Comfortable, virgin Israel fell in the bloom of her youth, never to rise again. The kingdom of Assyria came, they conquered Israel, and most of the people of Israel were led away into captivity. Israel, who thought they had both God's presence and God's favor, were deprived of both as they faded from existence and from memory. However, the call in this passage still remains. This call for the comfortable to repent has been carried down through the ages, and it sounds forth from the passage of Amos here this evening. It's really a call to examine our lives. And it's a a call that's echoed In the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks, What is your only comfort in life and in death? And what's the answer? It's not our outward show of religion. Right? It's not building up a comfortable life for ourselves. It's not our families. It's not our homes. It's it's not having a full plate, a full refrigerator, a full freezer, full cupboards. It's it's not the medication that we take or the doctors that we see. It's It's not any of that. Instead, when Christians are asked our only comfort, we are to respond that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the only comfort that can be found in the face of God's wrath is Jesus. It's Christ. It's not the comfy chair of our sin but it's the secure comfort of the storm shelter that has been provided for us. He is the one we are to seek and he is the one in whom we will find life. And so this evening, wherever you are in your life right now, I urge you to examine your life. Examine your life. Find these false comforts to which you're clinging and root them out. You need to come to Jesus. Some of you for the first time, some of you for the thousandth time. You need to seek him and live. Wherever you are, you need to acknowledge the coming judgment. You need to turn from your sin and turn again to Christ. Turn to the Lord through faith in Christ, for he is the only place of true comfort in front of this impending tornado of the wrath of God. Don't seek the comfort and the luxuries of this life. Don't seek the good things that you can find in this life. Don't seek the bottle or the bedroom. Don't seek status at work or the popularity of friends. Don't seek more vacations or the endless distraction of Netflix. Don't seek to make your chair more comfortable however you want to make it comfortable. Rather, seek Christ and live. Get out of your comfortable complacency. Repent from it. And how do you do that? You acknowledge the coming judgment You turn from your sin, and you turn to the Lord through faith in Christ. For in him you will find life. Comfortable Israel thought that they were secure in the faith of their past, and they were not afraid to practice idolatry and injustice. They ignored the call to repent. How will we respond? Along with the prophet Amos, as we hear the word of God this evening, we should be urged to seek the Lord and live. Let's pray. Lord, we pray on this evening that you would wake us up from our comfortable complacency. We pray that in your great mercy you would work in our hearts that we might turn from our sin and turn to you in Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus in whom we can find true and lasting comfort. May we come to know him more and more in faith and may we live lives of gratitude for what you have done for us. We thank you for everything that you've given to us in Christ and Lord, we pray that we would show love and compassion to those around us, that we would love as we have been loved. Lord, we pray that we would be able to do this by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our song of response.